0: you are listening to the protagonist of the erotic produced by extra extra each episode is dedicated as an act of love to the libidinal oeuvre of a living person desired object or location that can be visited in the present day Discover what it means to define and shape sensuality, framed within the dynamic context of modern urban life. <laughs> David Cronenberg Beyond Sexuality, beyond sex, beyond gender. For Nicholas Elliott, the films of David Cronenberg are about pure transcendence. From the merging of steely cronium and pale fish netted ties in crash, to fantastical dancing typewriters in Naked Lunch, to the blind eye of fantasy in M. Butterfly. Nicholas charts his love affair with the director, a romance which began during his early teenage years. In these films, cold attachment collides with unflinching depictions of the inner workings of the human body, the intertwinement of flesh with technology via alien gynaecological instruments, or a meat-like lump of AI interface. Amongst the visceral VHS tapes and leatherette car seats, Nicholas navigates the nuances of his own sexual identity, finding liberation in the radical non-judgment of Cronenberg's erotic gaze.
1: When I was first becoming obsessed with movies, I read Inner Visions, a book of interviews between Rolling Stone writer David Breskin and half a dozen North American filmmakers. The only specific piece of information I retained from that book over the decades, aside from the dispiriting fact that David Lynch had voted for Ronald Reagan was from the passage in which David Cronenberg discussed Dead Ringers, his harrowing film about the death spiral of a pair of twin gynecologists, both played by Jeremy Irons. In my memory, Cronenberg said he had learned enough about gynecology in researching the film that he felt confident that if medical circumstances demanded, he could give his wife a vaginal examination.
0: Now, the female.
1: When I read this, I would have been a teenage virgin whose experience with vaginas was limited to the birth process, an episode of unskilled fumbling with my first girlfriend, and many pictures in Hustler and Penthouse.
2: A vagina. When a man and woman want to make love or have intercourse,
0: the man's penis becomes erect so that it can more easily enter the vagina. During intercourse, sperm in a fluid called semen pushed out through erect into the womans meeting the, sperm and the egg.
1: Cronenberg's assertion made a huge impression it was frightening in that way new horizons in eroticism can be but equally intriguing in its promise of intimacy I couldn't yet fathom it created a an image of the artist that was not entirely reassuring. It seemed weird to me that a man could take such a detached approach to his wife's sex organs, but it also exuded a kind of take-charge, unflappable coolness I could only envy at an age when I was agonizing over which underarm deodorant to wear. Above all, Cronenberg's statement was too much information not in the boundary setting, contemporary sense of TMI. Don't embarrass me with anything personal, but literally too much for me to make sense of with the life experience then at my disposal. For me, Cronenberg's humble brag about being able to carry out an emergency pelvic exam was one of those things that hits you when you're at your peak of sensitivity and remains lurking in your body for further processing years later, when your mind is ready. Like the scene in Cronenberg's film Crash, when Vaughn kisses Ballard in the back of his convertible, and Ballard goes home to fuck his wife and tell her what Vaughn smelled like when he mounted him. I like art that's a few steps ahead of me.
2: It's sex. Sex in that car. Have you seen his penis? As I described Vaughn to her, I listened to my voice rising slightly above the sounds of our bodies. I itemized the elements that constituted Vaughn's image in my mind, his hard buttocks held within the worn jeans as he rolled himself onto one hip to leave the car, the sallow skin of his abdomen almost exposing the triangle of his pubis as he lounged behind the steering wheel, the horn of his half-wrecked penis pressing against the lower rim through the damp crotch of his trousers, the minute nodes of dirt he picked from his sharp nose and wiped on the indented vinyl of the door panel, the ulcer on his left index finger as he handed me the cigarette lighter, his hard nipples through the frayed blue shirt brushing against the horn boss, his broken thumbnail scratching at the semen stains on the seat between us. Is he circumcised? Catherine asked. Can you imagine what his anus is like? Describe it to me.
1: The strange thing about that interview is that when I reread it 30 years later in a new collection of conversations with Cronenberg, there was no mention of his gynecological prowess. The passage was gone, leaving me with the unnerving thought that I had made it up. Yet I remembered it so clearly. I can see that blue and white paperback absorbing the steam from my bathwater, and below that my naked body shriveling in the bathtub. Was David Cronenberg's aura strong enough to plant the seed of a false memory? certainly no stranger to hallucination. And there is no filmmaker who has been more successful at getting under my skin, confronting me with the body and sexuality in ways that were as foreign and uncomfortable as they were potentially liberating. When I think of my young self seeing and loving Cronenberg's Naked Lunch and Crash, for instance, but not understanding how much they could help me to navigate the upcoming monsoon of what for the purposes of this podcast I'll call my queerness, but which on another day I could refer to as my bisexuality, slow-blooming gayness, fluid straightness, aspirational heterosexuality, or failed homosexuality, I marvel at the inner resistances that were in place to prevent me from seeing what these films had to show me. I'd like to experience an alternate life in which my teenage self sees Cronenberg's wild adaptation of William S. Burroughs' novel, Naked Lunch, whose riffs on alien sodomy and bug-infested delusion were scriptures of my adolescent reverie, and realize, oh wow, this is about a guy who is so uncomfortable with his desire for other guys that he totally reimagines the world to avoid facing that desire for what it is. Armed with that cautionary tale, my alternate teenage self would buy a ticket to Crash, Cronenberg's subsequent adaptation of a J.G. Ballard novel about people who are sexually aroused by automobile accidents, and see it as the jaw-dropping pian to freedom and exploration that it undoubtedly is, though my real self had to wait 25 years to realize that. Buoyed by Naked Lunch's negative example of lying to yourself and Crash's positive example of keeping an open mind, my alternate self would quickly evolve into a totally liberated sexual being who by the age of 30 had so thoroughly explored his desires that he could settle down to a bucolic existence producing artisanal honey with his soulmate. is a good thing, because outside of David Cronenberg films like Videodrome, Naked Lunch, Existenz, or Spider, we don't get alternate lives. Here, in my real life, I will continue to think about how the things you don't see because you're not ready to see them work on you over the years. Shortly after Crash premiered at the Cannes Film Festival in 1996, David Cronenberg appeared at the National Film Theatre in London for a public conversation with J.G. Ballard. Late in the discussion, Cronenberg made a revealing aside about his perception of the characters in his film about a group of people so enthralled by automobile accidents that sex and death seemed to merge in their pursuit of ever more grotesque ways of combining bodies and twisting metal. He said,
3: The characters are moving beyond sexuality, beyond sex, beyond gender, to some other thing, uh, which they don't totally achieve by the end of the movie, but that seems to be where they're going. That's part of their experiment. That's part of their escape and their freedom. And uh, certainly the, the, the best walkout moment in the film is when Vaughn and Ballard kiss. You know, this is, I mean, because uh, a lot of young men leave at that point um, uh, and uh, they, they can't, I think it's because they've invested so much of their heterosexual sexuality in this stud James Spader, if, if they're seeing the movie that way anyway, uh, and then suddenly he's, he's having sex with a man.
1: Watching a recording of this conversation a quarter century after I had seen Crash for the first time, and decided it had forever changed my perception of cars hurtling people through urban spaces, I was not only stunned by the openness with which Cronenberg viewed behavior that most people would describe as deviant, if not simply depraved, but genuinely moved. Mostly, however, I was shocked that I could ever have thought Crash was about cars, when clearly it was about freedom and what that implies about the use of our bodies in search of pleasure and meaning. The freedom Cronenberg allows his characters is the freedom he enjoys as an artist and that he offers to the viewer. As a viewer, I've come to demand that freedom to interpret the work, i.e. to not have meaning imposed, even if that means I'm initially befuddled. This is a sign of the artist's respect for my intelligence. Yet I'm always surprised to be reminded how much I missed the first time around and how much I'm still missing. That's the double-edged sword of being challenged by what you read and watch. The great works might make you feel dumb by knowing more about you than you do. They stand as references against which to measure yourself as you return to them over the years, not so much to assess the evolution of your intellect but to gauge how you have learned to see. Or, more aptly, since we're talking about David Cronenberg and his radical non-judgment, how you have learned to allow yourself to see. You change, but the artworks don't. Everything they have to tell you is there, waiting for you.
2: In his vision of a car crash with the actress, Vaughn was obsessed by many wounds and impacts. By the dying chromium and collapsing bulkheads of their two cars meeting head-on in complex collisions, endlessly repeated in slow-motion films, by the identical wounds inflicted on their bodies, by the image of windshield glass frosting around her face as she broke its tinted surface like a death-born aphrodite, by the compound fractures of their thighs impacted against their handbrake mountings, and above all, by the wounds their genitalia her uterus pierced by the heraldic beak of the manufacturer's medallion, his semen emptying across the luminescent dials that registered forever the last temperature and fuel levels of the engine. It was only at these times, as he described this last crash to me, that Vaughn was calm. He talked of those wounds and collisions with the erotic tenderness of a long-separated lover. Searching through the photographs in his apartment, he half-turned towards me so that his heavy groin quieted me with its profile of an almost-erect penis. He knew that as long as he provoked me with his own sex, which he used casually as if he might discard it forever at any moment, I would never leave him.
1: Cronenberg's supremely non-judgmental approach to behaviors most would at the very least describe as reckless should not have surprised me, given that his boundless appetite for experiment has long been matched by a willingness to conduct his experiments without imposing conclusions. His offhand statement about his character's pursuit of freedom serves not only as an encapsulation of crash but of principles central to a body of work teeming with non-erotic sex, eroticism outside the realm of identified sex acts, experiments with the limits of the human body, and visceral entwinements of flesh and technology. Aside from the part about flesh and technology, which seems to be happening whether I like it or not, I wish I could be a little more Cronenbergian in adopting a kind of conceptual neutrality that allowed me to assess my desires without buckling beneath the weight of normative expectations. The question isn't so much what you actually do, but what you're willing to imagine. And what is abundantly clear in Cronenberg's films is that he's willing to imagine anything. Letting his imagination loose, he defies the conventions of mainstream narrative cinema to examine from every aspect the behavior of characters who are themselves free. The artist's freedom does not tax the viewer's nervous system with goofy camera angles or jarring edits. On the contrary, Cronenberg's style is often so dispassionate as to evade description. But for many viewers the way Cronenberg subverts narrative expectations may be more upsetting than an untoward strobe effect. Crash begins with three sex scenes in a row which would be standard in a porno movie, but is unusual to the point of being unsettling when the scenes are clearly not designed to titillate, as is the case
3: here. On that level, obviously, crash is not pornography. I mean, it's obviously not meant, in fact, people complain, you know, they say, gee, I wasn't, you know, there's a lot of sex and I wasn't turned on. Well, you know, that. yeah. Uh, part of that was the point and part of that was the situation of the characters now of course i would like for by the end of the film that you had your your feeling for the uh, what was erotic and what was not might well have shifted because that's what while there
1: is an evolution in the character's behavior over the course of the film crash's overall structure is grounded in repetition creating an impression of looping flatness visually embodied by periodic lateral tracking shots that cross empty spaces to reveal a couple having sex, often in a car. This unhurried manner of coming upon an act of sexual intercourse already underway feels more inquisitive than sensational or voyeuristic, as if the director were asking, what do we have here? What combination of people and in what position? James Spader's performance as Ballard, a filmmaker who begins to dabble in the sexual allure of automobile accidents after a traumatic crash of his own, displays an analogous impassive openness. Whether Ballard is witnessing a fetishistic recreation of a lethal accident or his wife being roughly fucked by their new friend Vaughn, played by Elias Cotillas, Cronenberg includes non-reactive reaction shots of Spader's face looking interested but unmoved. Freedom is not passion. Meanwhile, the audience is free to draw their own conclusions from material that will elicit a reaction from most viewers but is not inflected by the filmmaker in such a way as to impose a perspective. Cronenberg's camera is as even-keeled as ever, for instance, when it records Gabrielle, the car crash survivor played by Rosanna Arquette, using a gaping scar on her leg as a sexual orifice. Perhaps some of the many people who hated Crash were disturbed because the film did not tell them how to feel about acts they assumed they should find repulsive, but instead found exciting, like a heterosexual couple pushing the probable outcome of their sexual exploration toward death or two men having sex. Perhaps I thought crash was about cars because I wasn't ready to deal with how hot it was to see two men making out in a car.
2: Would you like to sodomize him? Would you like to put your penis right into his anus, thrust it up his anus? Tell me, describe it to me. Tell me what you do. How would you kiss him in that car? Describe how you would reach over and unzip his trousers, then take out his penis. Would you kiss it, or suck it straight away? Which hand would you hold it in? Have you ever sucked a penis? Catherine had taken over the fantasy. Whom did she see lying beside Vaughn, herself, or me? Do you know what semen tastes like? Have you ever tasted semen? Some semen is saltier than others. Vaughn's semen must be very salty. I looked down at her blonde hair that covered her face, at her hips kicking as she carried herself towards her orgasm. This was one of the first times that she had envisaged me in a homosexual act and the intensity of the fantasy surprised me. She shuddered through her orgasm, her body in a rigour of pleasure. Before I could reach out to embrace her, she turned over, lying face downwards to let my semen run from her vagina, then pulled herself from the bed and stepped briskly into the bathroom. During the next week. Catherine drifted through the departure lounges of the airport like a queen in rut, watching her from my car as Vaughn kept her within his aberrant gaze. I felt my loins surging, my penis pressing against
1: the steering wheel. If I wasn't ready to be turned on by Crash in 1996, I certainly wasn't prepared for the lesson in Cronenberg's previous two films, Naked Lunch and M. Butterfly. Those two films occupy opposite ends of Cronenberg's expressive spectrum while his starkly personal reinvention of the Burroughs novel reaches extremes of hallucinatory fantasy, his adaptation of David Henry Huang's Broadway play M. Butterfly does not patently stray from the norms of the well-told costume drama. Yet the protagonists of both films are men who bend reality to accommodate their discomfort with homosexual desire. Early in Naked Lunch, the Burroughs' stand-in Bill Lee played by an appropriately terse Peter Weller, tells a police investigator that he has gone straight. He has a wife and a job as a bug exterminator. It soon becomes clear that Lee is hiding from two things as inextricably linked as they are inescapable, his urge to write and his desire for men. A relapse into drug addiction allows him to indulge these needs while experiencing them in a way that is more tolerable to his sense of self. Cronenberg shifts between showing us Bill Lee's perception of the world, in which talking typewriters give him orders and the sight of two men having sex resembles an unholy mix of crucifixion and cannibalism, and an objective reality in which a typewriter is a typewriter and the sounds made by the participants in the sex act I just mentioned suggest they're both having a great time. The fact that the fantasy made flesh by Lee's hallucinations is far more horrifying than anything he would likely experience by having gay sex only speaks to the maddening nature of sexual repression. In M. Butterfly, the staid French diplomat René Gallimard, played by Jeremy Irons, falls desperately in love with a singer at the Chinese opera and sacrifices his career to be with her. But as is readily apparent to everyone but Gallimard, starting with the film's audience, the person he loves is a man dressed as a woman. And while Cronenberg gives us the most utilitarian sex scene in his filmography to reveal the sexual position that might allow Gallimard to not be immediately aware of the gender that was assigned to his lover at birth, it is clear that the fallen diplomat has to call on the bottomless power of denial to maintain the illusion over two decades and achieve his sad triumph over reality. As much as it moves me now to recognize the depths of understanding that a straight-identifying filmmaker brought to these depictions of gay men's struggle to accept their desires, it pains me to think that I was too willfully clueless to realize how these films could speak to me and possibly help me. I remember being disappointed with M. Butterfly because it was too conventional, too straight, when in fact it was so gay. As for Naked Lunch, I loved it for its garish realization of what I thought drugs were supposed to make you see, but that never materialized under the effect of the hash at home in Luxembourg. It took me years to see that the connection Naked Lunch makes between the fear of writing and the fear of fucking was central to my own stuttering existence. Today I take comfort in the hopeful evolution one sees in this sequence of three films in Cronenberg's filmography, from the repression of Naked Lunch and M. Butterfly to The Freedom of Crash, a movie about letting whatever happens happen. Deep into my 40s, I think I understand what Cronenberg had to say. To me not to my mom, or to my friend Walid, or to anyone else who had their own experience being respected by a great filmmaker. While it could be terribly depressing to think I wasted all this time because I was too scared to listen to the films, I find solace in the beauty of misinterpretation and the power of undercurrents. When I was a teenager, I might have made up part of an interview with David Cronenberg. Whether or not Cronenberg said he had the skills to conduct a pelvic exam, his films led me to believe he could say that. The films were working on me beneath the surface, dropping clues to things I might one day want to understand. The freedom they offered me is to see what is not even there.
0: Thank you for joining Extra Extra on this listening experience. It's been a pleasure to have welcomed you on a journey through this episode of The Protagonist of the Erotic. Please visit us at extraextramagazine.com where you can hear more about our auditory program and discover further editorial content Exploring the intertwinement of sensuality and the city.